Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. Well, I really didn't want this conversation that you're about to hear to end. I wanted to go on and on and on, listening to, talking with, learning from, and with Daryl Carner, who is a change professional of many, many years of experience, depth, wisdom, but incredible energy. You'll hear it. It's just comes straight off the screen or into your ears as someone who not only loves helping organizations at the highest level make transformational changes, helping them make those changes. He is learning constantly what works and what doesn't. And writes blogs about it, among other things. He has an academy, the Connor Academy, to help um, change professionals ascend to a higher level of mastery. Uh, and he has a for-profit and a non-profit advisory. So he's a very engaged, busy, fun person <laughs> to talk with, and I didn't want it to end. But here he is, and I'm going to ask for another one soon because there's so much more I can learn, and therefore we can learn about practice from a leading change practitioner, Daryl Connor. Well, folks, recently I had uh, a recorded conversation with a, a good old friend, Judy Neal. And in the course of that conversation, or maybe a little after when I turned off the recording, I asked her um, about how she moved herself from what she spoke of as a very low point in her life. And it's hard to believe Judy Neal ever had a low point, but she did, and most of us have. And she said, well, I give great credit to Daryl Corner uh, and his advice. And here we are. Uh, with Daryl Corner. See my main accent working on your name, Daryl. <laughs> Daryl Corner, <laughs> who who uh, has one of his primary platforms for being in the world, the Corner Advisory, which he has told me just before we started recording. Uh, he is uh, focusing on. NGOs, non-government organizations. And I'll start with that, Daryl. Why NGOs of all the humans who need advice these days? Why did you concentrate on them? Well, the maybe the, the place to start, the nature of the advice, uh, Dave, is is I'm I'm in the my my guidance is around the execution of large-scale transformational change. Mm. And um, and I first began. Uh, the, I had I worked in counseling uh, before, but uh, about 50 years ago, I started Connor Partners as an organization that would bring behavioral science into um, trying to provide guidance for organizations going through change. Today, that 
that discipline is called change management. But this 50 years ago, there was there was no discipline. Oh, you're and, right. Um, so so for most of those years, that's what that's what I did. I provided the the research and the and the and the, and the, the mechanisms to support organizations going through major fundamental change. And uh, about eight years ago, um, it got clear for me that um, that I I felt the need to to provide the same guidance, but I begin to make a distinction between changes that work and changes that matter. And I oh, so I like change uh, all those years I was helping organizations ensure that their changes worked. I didn't feel like many of them actually mattered at at a certain level, Dave. They, yeah, they certainly mattered to shareholders or whatever. But a, a change that matters to me is a change that is going to have an impact on the on the human experience in some way, a positive impact. And um, um, and so I wanted to take the remaining years of my of me practicing my craft. I wanted to apply it in that arena. So. So others are are taking taking counterpartners forward and continuing to to provide guidance to organ to corporate organizations, but um, but I wanted to focus in on 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 changes that matter. Now, um, I didn't decide to only work with NGOs. I decided mm-hmm. to only work with changes that matter. There's just a high concentration of changes that matter within that sector. Yeah, that makes and sense. so that that's makes really a great deal of difference. Yeah. And uh, how are you able to know and be known in this sector? Uh, in the commercial <laughs> side, we know we put out a lot of uh, yeah shingles yeah, and say here, yeah. but how do they how do they find you and you find them? So you're right in the in the in the the for profit side. There's a lot of business development activity, right? Um, the, the NGO sector, the nonprofit sector, doesn't operate that way. It's it, it um it's very insular in many respects. It it pretty much is one leader talking to another leader about a resource that they found useful. Yeah. And so um so that's that's really how these last eight years have unfolded. Um is is leaders from one organization, you know, introducing me to other leaders. Um, my work is really limited to just the CEOs and their boards and their direct reports. So it's just that upper echelon. Right. And um, and they, you know, they know each other. So it really is just word of mouth. That That's the only way it it pursues within that sector. Well, if you were not viewed to be effective in that role, in that advisory role, <laughs> the word would never have left the mouth or it would have been the wrong word. So you're, <laughs> you're working heavily on on outcomes for sure but i think there's something that goes deeper and that is uh trust they're not going to tell a colleague go talk to daryl unless you've developed rapport and more deeply uh, trust because i've had enough life in the nonprofit and the not the ngo world to know that the voluntary nature of all of us in that world even though we may get a paycheck, is deeply rooted in our values, as contrasted perhaps with the nature of uh, being in a commercial organization. We may have some allegiance to their purpose, but it's a different tap, if you will, 
to the heart uh, than NGOs and nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And so you're how um, I'm I'm not asking you to tell me all the ways you gender trust, but is how important is trust in both working with them and then being referred uh, to others? Um, well, it's very important, as you would as you would guess. Um, but the to me, trust is very contextual uh, mm -hmm. in this environment. Um, I would not expect for them and hope they wouldn't trust me to fix their car or conduct brain surgery. Um, <laughs> so it's very it's in a narrow perspective. And uh, so the only introductions I have are those that leaders within one context that know another leader in that context might feel like that I could be of guidance. And here's the context. Um, I, I, I have three questions that I pose to to a, a leader I'm just sitting down with. Um, first, since since my work is not about change formation, like what it's not about what are you going to change? It's around change execution. How do you how do you realize this vision that you have? And so I have three questions. Uh, they already know before I meet them what they want to do. So my question is, uh, is, is the nature of your aspiration incremental or transformational in nature? Are you nudging things along or are you creating a new paradigm? Second question, um, how are you measured by yourself or by the board are you measured against installation metrics or realization metrics? Wow. So an installation metric is, or those are the things we do that we hope will lead to change. Yeah. Realization is the measurement of the actual impact itself. So if you and I agreed that um, this change includes training 100 people in something, Many, I would say most organizations measure success by did we train 100 people? It's a very useful installation metric, but a realization metric would be not only did they learn what you wanted them to, not only did they apply it as you trained them, did they achieve the impact that warranted the training? You go all the way to to the end, and and so <laughs> yeah. that's my second question: how how are you measuring yourself, and and how will you be measured? And the third question is: I'm sure you you know you you and I wouldn't have this conversation if you didn't want change. So I know that, but is this a good idea, and you hope it works, or is it an absolute personal and organizational imperative that there is no this has to work on your watch? Um, and so my work is around organizations that are involved in transformational change. They're being measured against installation and realization outcomes. Mm -hmm. So nothing short of realization is acceptable. And the, and the nature of that, their urgency is it's an absolute imperative. It's not just a good idea. That they can trust that I have in... I've spent 50 years studying the patterns of success and failure in that range. So it's not, Dave, it's not really very broad, My the trust that, that we developed together. It's very narrow around, around change and more specifically around fundamental change that absolutely has to get done. And there's, there's just, there's certain, 
over the years, I've, I've documented certain mindsets and behaviors that leaders are displaying when they actually pull that off versus when they don't. It's, you know, that's, a, that's um, tremendous food for thought already. I had a banquet here in that, in that answer of the three questions. It seems to me that the third question is where you have to trust them. Because the other two, okay, we get that. But if if you're saying, is it an imperative for you and the board for, for this change to happen? And they go, uh, oh, yes, yes, it is. And then you're having the conversations and you realize it doesn't have that weight that they're looking for maybe from you a way of having it look transformational but not quite i i don't know i'm being you know with all the stuff going on in congress right now i'm becoming very cynical about people who, who say absolutely this is a must and then and then they're wiggling i, I well, don't want um, you to tell me that that happens very often but i hunch is that that's where your trust in them is key um it is but but uh, but the trust is is caution filled okay. in this sense. Um, when you ask that third question and you get the answer, yes, we're absolutely, I'm totally committed. As opposed to in other sectors, you mentioned one in Washington, you may well get an answer that has nothing to do with the truth of that person at all. Yeah. Uh, they're just telling you what would be a good soundbite. Um, my experience with most leaders in the NGO environment is when they tell you they're totally committed, they told, they absolutely mean that. There's no equivocation. I know, and, and can I trust that? Absolutely. But I also know very, very few leaders have orchestrated true fundamental paradigm change. Very few. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm hearing is a, is a naive commitment yeah, that so, makes sense. So, so Dave, would you like? Would you be willing to? Are you committed enough to, you know, to use this new software? Yeah, the software looks great. Yeah, let's do it. You don't have a clue how difficult it's going to be to actually. No. Oh, okay, so, <laughs> so I I do accept and I trust their first yes, but I know they are saying yes to me during uninformed optimism. That's optimism based on insufficient data. And a whole lot of hope. <laughs> a whole lot of hope. And mm-hmm. what's going to happen is we're going to decide to partner together. And within a day or a week or a month, they're going to go, oh, my gosh, what? I mean, we've got to deal with now. Now I have to come back and ask those questions again. Yeah. And I and and, and David, I don't I don't just ask the last one because. A month later, given everything else going on, it may be less transformational than they thought. It, mm-hmm. they, um, they may be politically deciding to shift to some installation metrics because they're, they're, they're easier. Uh, because of some other alligators now chomping on them, maybe that commitment. So, so all three questions, and certainly your focus on the last one, my basic axiom is whatever answer you give me, that's good for about 24 hours. And so we need to revisit it constantly. It, it's it's a good exercise in, in your own um, 
well, well, well developed over 50 years um, discretion in regard to what you can ultimately do and, and those who you're helping become advisors as well. Uh, there's a lot in conversation in the field that my publisher, uh, my library is is rooted in organization development and change field. Uh, there's there's a wonderful aspect of that called use of self, exactly. uh, which which says to these potential uh, consultants, advisors, and coaches, recognize this isn't software. You are the software. <laughs> <laughs> you are the software. That's you exactly are the right. software. And and so it's a 24-hour uh, character development uh, exercise that never ends. And uh, But there is one, I'm sorry to let you go ahead and respond to what I just said. Well, it, what it brings to mind for me is I, I so resonate with what you're saying. Um, I've mentioned two of the platforms I have as Connor Partners for Corporate and Connor Advisory uh, for the NGO. Uh, there's also Connor uh, Academy. And the Academy is dedicated to senior level practitioners no longer looking for tools and techniques. They got plenty of those. Yeah. They're looking for how do I raise my game as the instrument? How do I step into whatever tools and techniques I'm using how do I accelerate the value by how I show up? And and that's 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 the academy is totally devoted to that. And so, I mean that that what you just said is so important from the practitioner standpoint. Yes. Um, if you're fortunate enough to have an opportunity to to advise an organization actually doing something important, you got you got to be on your game. You got to have you got to be pursuing that. That mastery, and to your point, mastery is never finished. You're always, every horizon opens up new questions. But if you're not actively pursuing your own development in that sense, then it's unlikely you're going to be where you need to be to provide the greatest value to that client. No, it, I think the, the folks that I've gotten to know uh, rise to that challenge and want to keep rising. And and I and I find a great deal of hope in that. I I when I was a management professor, as was Judy Neal, uh, for a period of her life, I tended to be a little discouraged about those who accepted the title manager or even managerial leader, and then wouldn't or couldn't, <laughs> and yet kept it. And so I I I and yet they were putting their self out there. That's who they were to the people who counted on them to make help them make the right decisions. But when we're talking about advisors at the level that you're talking about, I think of Ed Shine, for example, a good colleague of ours who just passed away. Yeah. He he would be in this conversation right now, as would Peter Vale, who knew Ed quite well. And they would both say, it's not for the faint-hearted or the faint uh, anyone. It's And it's not also... This is the hard part, and I was want to ask you about this. We all, as human beings, are asked to give advice. Every one of us, no matter what, you know, should I use this wrench or that wrench if you're out there with plumbers? Everyone is asked to give advice. Uh, that's what you give advice. And you just said, I really have to believe that they mean that they want my advice. Uh, 
but it's still left up to the person after you've given the advice. Yeah. And that in itself, for the person who's put their self into this thing, are going, I did my damnedest, and they still yeah. blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's your academy must have to teach a little bit about how to live, well, with, live with failure. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, the the focal point for that particular element for me is that my job is not to make sure that they make the right decision. My job is to make sure they make informed decisions. Okay. So if you turn left, these are the implications. If you turn right, these are the implications. You, what, whichever direction you turn, I will be there to help you deal with that. But it's, but it's for you to decide. Um, and many practitioners come into the academy thinking somehow they're failing when they provided impeccable guidance, but then then it moves in the other direction. Um, um, the first, the first lesson, first awareness I had of that was um, uh, Peter Block. Um, oh yeah. When he, um, Peter and I, occasionally bang, banged around together, and and I know when he first came out with Flawless Consulting, I thought, well, that's an arrogant title. I mean, that, <laughs> and it didn't seem to match Peter. I mean, he wasn't like that. Uh, and then I uh, actually read the book <laughs> and realized that that what he's saying is that you can be flawless about what you bring. Don't confuse that with what happens, right? That's very good advice yeah. <laughs> for a surgeon or anyone else who exactly <laughs> who brings their 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 expertise. Now, what you team. can do, what I do, is to be very very clear with the recipient of that advice about the about the constraints under which the advice will work. So, so for example, if you're not on a transformational journey, if you're not going to hold yourself accountable to much higher standards of, of realization, if this is not truly like you, it has to work, then some of the advice I would give you will not, either be less useful or maybe not useful at all, because with those three criteria met, you have, of course, you're still going to be engaging and, and, and inviting people in and, and getting as much participation as possible, but you're also going to grab some lapels and get in somebody's face. You're going to be, you're going to be working both ends of the continuum, not just one. And it's because of the criticality of what you set out for yourself. If you if you went for less complex change, then then you don't have to be so demanding in in what in what you do. You can ask uh, if you're going to bring in outside help for that level of, of um, commitment. You could uh, ask for a formula or ask for a proven method, you know, or someone to come in to install a system, a decision-making system, similar to the quality management systems of the day. Uh, and uh, and they will have, what did you call, transactional res results, uh, but not- Transformational results? But but not transformational. Oh, you, oh, if, oh yes. If, yeah. if you bring in a method and they're willing, okay. Yes. Well, at least we can tell the board we brought in 
XY consulting firm and they established the system and they had a great slide deck. (laughs) I'm being a little facetious. I've seen so much of this in my 50 plus years. But I want to get back to the second question you ask, which is paradigm shift. How is that something that comes naturally to the leadership that they actually see a whole new way of being that organization as if a paradigm that that's a big, that's uh, no, a heavy lift. It is a heavy lift. Um, it's so heavy that it's to me, it's the term transformation paradigm. Those terms are, are, are tossed around way too, way too liberally. Yeah. Um, I, at least 80% of leaders who first talked to me about them going through a transformational change before we finish lunch, I'll suggest to them that it's I, I don't doubt it's an important change. I don't doubt that they're spending a lot of money. But what they're doing is incrementally making the current paradigm better. They're not changing the paradigm. There you go. Um, it's 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 a very heavy lift. And and part of why I have such immense re- respect and and gratitude for the leaders I get to work with in this sector, the, the the NGO sector, the shelf life of the model they've used for a long time has begun to expire. They're, they've got to figure out not just a little bit better, they got to figure out some major fundamental shifts. Yeah. And I have such respect for leaders that, that that's what they're aspiring to. They're not just trying to make things a little better. Um, but, but to your point, um, most leaders that would use the term, I, I don't think they're mis- intentionally misleading. I think they just don't have an experience base to know what tra- true transformation is. Yeah. Um, it's it's messy. It's hard. Your the tolerance for ambiguity is massive. Um, <laughs> you you've got to let go of one trapeze before you grab the other one. I mean, it's you learn from mistakes as much as anything else. I mean, it's a it's daunting. It's daunting. Now, I'm a civilian looking at the world of affairs as at this moment. And I'm thinking of an NGO, for example, like who has the purpose of uh, hunger and uh, alleviating hunger in, in, a, in a place where they are desperate. And I'm thinking, uh, and I could go on and on and on with all of the kinds of things that are affecting humans and other living creatures that are on the edge or already cross the edge of devastation. And I'm thinking human organizations like I've studied and you've studied all these years are about the best thing we have to attack and correct these issues. We we don't have anything else, but let's form an organization. Let's put people in it and let's get people doing the work. Uh, so I'm, I don't know what I'm saying at this point, except that I'm, I'm hoping like hell that there are more and more leaders or clusters of leaders who are willing to go with you, uh, Daryl, to pass the safety, um, the, the, the safety net, if you will, working without yeah. a net, yeah, willing to get out there. Yeah. Because 
every sector of need that I can think of, healthcare, you name it, energy, we need organizations that can break through and come out with something that works a lot and, and better. Dave, you're touching on something that is what led to, to the work making sure that we include boards. Because even when you yeah. have a CEO that has that courage, um, if it gets squelched by a, a, a an overly conservative board, that boards typically are very attracted to the outcomes of the paradigm leap. They don't want to pay the price to get there, though, because it's risky to get there. It is. <laughs> and it so is. boards boards have to be in, in a partnership with the CEO and the CEO with the senior team. That that upper echelon tier, if there's if, if there's a, a weak link in that in that chain, then the rest of the organization does not have much chance of getting there. Now, most of my limited knowledge of NGOs is those boards are appointed by their governments or their, uh, how do they arrive at no. board membership? Well, there are, there are some like that. No, most of them. So there's a, there's a pejorative that I'll, I'll own up to. Not, I wouldn't say most. many of them, Dave, you become a board member by being a donor. So if I give, give enough money, I yeah. get on the board. Yeah. That does, that is not always the best criteria for transformational change, no. but that's not the case with all boards. Um, uh, the ones that are are really judicious about bringing in mindsets that we need for really moving forward in a different way, um, you know, th those are the ones that those those are the ones that will most likely make the best progress. So so it's this challenge we're talking about is not limited to just just the senior officer uh, or even his or her direct reports. You, you you've got to have the board part of the mix and. What I would add to that is um, I, I naively thought that if you have these lofty aspirations, that there was less dysfunction in the organization. I haven't found that to be true. Um, all of the pitfalls that a for-profit organization run into in terms of territoriality and backstabbing and egos, all of that, I mean, we're still dealing with humans. I know. The, the, <laughs> the issue is these humans, and this is a big difference, these humans are aspiring toward an impact on humanity rather than their profit sharing this year. Exactly. And that... I can tell you that's a, a, a huge advantage in my work because when they, not if, when they display the hum, inevitable humanness of ego and everything else, if I, can, if I can demonstrate how that is inhibiting the mission and remind them that the mission that they told me, I didn't tell them, the mission was to build home for, homes for the homeless or or food for the hungry, or doctors without borders saving life. All of these organizations, there's a human tendency to kind of get caught up in the day to day and 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 behaviorally forget why we're here, and that that it's actually more important to accomplish that mission than my ego. Um, that's a huge leverage that that I can bring to bear. That I that I found not not so impactful when you it, it, on the corporate side sometimes. 
I get it. And, well, I, I am looking at little, uh, and I think Judy would speak to this too, little um, signs, uh, positive signs, like um, uh, plants coming up through the concrete in the for-profit world. Yes, that I there's, agree. That there's a real there interest in, 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 out in, their, in their social impact and, yes. and, and all, all these other values. I, I think that may be more driven by... Uh, this is what the customers demand, or the, but I, I'm sure it's not what Wall Street's asking for. So they have a little different <laughs> talk about no, paradigm. No, but you know what? Um, over the years, I've become less less pejorative about everybody has to have the same motive. Mm-hmm. Um, my my first introduction was when I was spent three years in the army, and and I was fortunate to be part of a psychological group of psychiatrists and social workers and they piled all of us together and said okay you you got you got two problems you got to figure out you got to figure out uh, this is 1968 you got to figure out what are we going to do about race relations and what are we going to do about drug abuse <laughs> no no programs um uh-huh. on the race relations side i gained an appreciation for the fact that that you may have a completely different motive than I do about why we each want to deal differently with this racial tension that we have in the past. But but if there was a common denominator that we both were deeply committed to it, that's what we would that's what we fostered. Um, so so the fact that to your point that maybe leaders on the profit side are driven by various things rather than necessarily what's best for humanity. If, if we can, if we're still driving in the right direction, I I'm willing to invest. Yeah. Use it, use it. Yeah. And, and uh, well, I, I have only a few more minutes and I want so much to know more about you, Daryl, since this is our first meeting and hopefully it won't be our last. Uh, I, my, my role in, practice podcast and the book on practice as a way of being is to find all kinds of people which i have over 200 now and ask them what do you love doing and why that instead of anything else you could be doing so and i've gotten some wonderful answers i don't ask that directly very often but that's what i'm seeking what moves this person to want to excel want to um go to potential and and doesn't necessarily get uh, all kinds of rewards for doing it but they accept the, the in, internal reward that they're growing and developing and changing which i think is damn important from a teacher's mm-hmm. perspective but mm-hmm. uh you've you've developed a, a a concentration of your time and attention and your reputation to change and particularly to uh the kinds of advice people need when they're going to make real change happen um has that been sort of a a, gen, a gradual trajectory in your life daryl uh or it, even back in 68 did you have that feeling this is what i want to be in the world i did not i no, i'm a late bloomer i i was not clear in 68 um i i did recognize in myself uh two two intersecting um, dynamics. One was I was interested in behavioral science and at that point, clinical psychology, but I also was, was, I was really interested in pattern recognition. Like, like what are the patterns associated with success and failure? What, whatever, 
whatever the situation was. And and so I, that's what I was pursuing. And 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 then I had the good fortune of having some exposure to Virginia Satir, who who uh, was a very powerful family therapist. And and that's where I learned systems for the first time. She would right. she never saw a single person. She would take the presenting symptom and only work with the family because yeah, of that. She was one of the and first who pioneered that. She was one of the first. And um, and so that opened up the systems door for me. Um, and then after finishing graduate work, um, I, 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 I took that, the interest of pattern recognition and behavioral science and, and wanted to explore to what degree is there are there patterns to success and failure around organizational change, not just personal or family change? Found that there were patterns, um, and more importantly, with intentionality, you could you could increase the likelihood of replicating the success patterns and avoiding uh, the down patterns. That was the key for me. Once I, I saw it. that, now now structure and framework could start to to form. Um, um, but once again, early on, I, you know, there, there wasn't much support because change management didn't exist. So yeah. I, I went to Dick Beckhart. I'm, you, you remember Dick, I'm sure. Of course. Um, and uh, he was he spent really just a few minutes with me, but it was pivotal. Um, I, I kind of laid out what I was doing. And I, you know, he was, you know, such a such an influence for me, uh, as was Peter and you know, all, several of the others that you mentioned. All, all of those guys had and so, huge respect for sitting for down with him. I re, I had, I, he, he could have just patted me on the head and said, you know, kid, go, go find another job. <laughs> he was so affirming. Um, you know, he said, look, you're, it looks to me like I'll never forget. He said, it looks to me like you're trying to figure out a way to operationalize some of the theories that we have. Um, and he said, he said, go for it, you know, go for it. And, and, Finally. <laughs> uh, it was, it was, it was juice for me. That's all. That's, that's, that's all I needed. And so that was the, so it was from, you know, clinical psychology to pattern recognition, to, to organizational dynamics, and then, and then taking or, those organizational learnings and, and applying them to, to changes that matter with NGOs and practitioners that hopefully would be in service to changes that matter. And, and throughout all that, for me personally, I, I don't push this on anybody else, but for me, there was a spiritual dimension down the center of all that, that, that without that grounding, I, I don't believe any of this would have unfolded for me. So, so there's that aspect as well. No, I, I and I, I will on second the motion of the spiritual aspect because to sustain yourself in in once you've seen the patterns and once you have a you know a story to tell and people to listen and all of that um it's for many people would see that as very abstract you know you, you're not an architect you, ha you can't point to the building you built and 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 yet in our the world of those of us who are advisors teachers coaches consultants explainers questioners uh i think people drop off unless they find that spiritual uh push that comes they, from within yes they they either drop off i certainly would agree with that or 
they get caught up thinking that they're the source instead of a conduit. Oh, and it, be- and it becomes an ego trip. Well, look at what I'm doing instead <laughs> of, I mean, I feel like my job and it's a full-time job is to try to keep the ego plaque out of the pipe. You know, I'm just a pipe. And if, if that ego plaque starts building up, man, stuff gets distorted. Um, uh, it, with, without that sense, it's because you have a lot of, you know, leaders say, gee, that was really helpful. Well, it sounds like it was me. Uh, I don't think it was. <laughs> well, th- there, but be, there, there is the spirit then, you know, to be a conduit is, is, is a spiritual link with other people. And uh, to be um, a source, a, a teller, all the other kind of push ways that we invariably are with other people. It's uh, more a matter of the intellect uh, or other aspects of human nature. Yep. But the, the, that that willingness to risk <laughs> opening ourselves up uh, to try to convey as opposed to tell is... I don't know. I'm, I I think you've helped me set a goal for my, I'm just turned 80. For my next 10 years, <laughs> I'm going to have to learn to do more of that. But in a way, I think the practice podcasts and the book and bringing Peter Vale, uh, keeping Peter Vale alive yeah. in people's yeah. memories is, is a conduit work. Yeah, uh, I don't have much new to tell, but I have a lot of wonderful people like you to tell about. Well, that that relationship that you and Peter we're given a voice to around around the relationship between theory and practice, mm-hmm. and um, that was that was him. That was because, the dance. because it there's so much there's so much seduction into getting caught up in one or the other. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I had the good fortune of not having any money, and so uh, the research that I was doing when I first started all this, I had to sell the findings to get enough money to do more research. I wasn't part of academia or anything else. I'm an, so I'm an, I'm an entrepreneurial researcher. <laughs> and if wow. I don't, if I don't that... figure out a way to make this finding relevant to an organization, then I don't, I don't get, I don't get to keep studying the phenomenon. So it really forces, you know, this, this integration of, of theory and practice, if you if you have to survive off of bringing them together. Oh, man, <laughs> really, truly, uh, that that's, that's a great way of characterizing what I think. Uh, even those of us who had the 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 uh, the shell of the acad- academy to kind of pull ourselves into, it, there were a lot of sacrifices, unfortunately, that were made and still being made. And this really concerned Peter Vale, that people are saying, well, I really would love to pursue this. I really have a real keen interest in that, but it won't get in the, it won't be publishable in the, in the journals that are going to get me for more right. than tenure. Right. And then they say, but after I'm tenured, oh yeah, look out world, I'm going to be a ball of fire. As soon as life is safe, <laughs> I'm going to be courageous. <laughs> so as an entrepreneur, you know, <laughs> if the plate is empty, it means you didn't earn the meal. <laughs> but your, uh, plate, your plate is full and you're doing wonderful work, Daryl Connor. And, uh, and, and I'll even work on my main accent. So the next time I mention your name, it'll be Daryl Oh, no. <laughs> You're doing great. Instead of Daryl Connor. <laughs> <laughs>
but it's been delightful. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you. I've really enjoyed the dialogue. Thanks for listening to the Practice Podcast, where we discuss practice with a capital P. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to anactionresearch.com slash podcast dash page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to actionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Oh, and, and one more thing. How could I forget? The book On Practice as a Way of Being is available now in digital form, something that would be new, like podcasting to many of us, And it's a a great way of learning more and more about what this podcast presented when Peter Vale and I originated it several years ago. So please come to www.mylibrary, one word, dot world slash practice, and you'll see what I mean. Thank you.